9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf. I'm the, your host today, co-host, and happy to be here. The other co-host, who's in a better place than, uh, than I am anyway, is Ryan Goodman, who's out by the water someplace, uh, Ryan. And uh, I can tell by Zoom that you're looking healthier than ever. So, well done, Ryan. <laughs> Thanks, David. Um, uh, and uh, we're also joined by two of uh, our favorite guests that have emerged through this period of, of, of challenge for the country, Dr. Lena Wen, who has, uh, has done many, many things in her career, including being president of Planned Parenthood and the health commissioner of the city of Baltimore and is a practicing physician, and she uh, uh, teaches uh, and she's also, since the last time we saw her, become a contributing columnist for the Washington Post. Hi, Lena. Hi. It's nice to join you all again. Nice to have you. And uh, another uh, friend who's back again, Kavita Patel, who is also a physician and also affiliated with uh, multiple institutions, including the Brookings Institution. Uh, and uh, was a former senior official in the Obama administration, worked in the Obama administration on uh, health policy there, and worked uh, uh, once upon a time in the office of Senator uh, Edward Kennedy. Hi, Kavita. Hi, thanks for having me back. No, really glad to have uh, both you folks on here. And, uh, and by the way, a couple days ago was Ryan's birthday. Oh, <laughs> uh, isn't that nice? So we, we wish Ryan a happy birthday. Um, uh, in any event, uh, we're here again to talk about the state of this uh, ongoing crisis the country faces. Uh, and let me turn to Ryan for the first question to one of you folks. Sure. So, uh, Lena, I thought to dive into your recent um, op-ed in the Washington Post where you talk about the next strategy that we've already somewhat backed ourselves into, which you refer to as harm reduction. And um, I thought to like highlight one of the paragraphs in your op-ed. And then the question I wanted to kind of pose to you is how you think about this from an interdisciplinary perspective. Like what are the kind of interdisciplinary expertise and tools that we'll need to bring to the question of harm reduction? So the quote that stood out for me was, um, you said, quote, I would not have advised that hair salons and gyms open for business, but since they have in some states, we should aim to stop the highest risk practices, prolonged treatments and crowded indoor fitness classes, for example. If people are going to get together in large groups despite the danger, we should at least advise that they do so outdoors for shorter periods of time and avoid practices with a higher likelihood of disease transmission, like sharing utensils and group contact sports, end quote. And I guess the, what it made me think about is social psychology of um, how we try to get people to engage in uh, good public health practices. Um, and there's even like 
you know, difficult social psychology work about group behavior and how individuals have certain kinds of risk behavior that's associated with their identity. So how do you like get them to rather think about it in different terms? Like I know of some of the social psychology research about uh, underage drinking or drinking on college campuses that when the college actually tells, tries to send out the message to students, don't drink, that's actually a message to drink. <laughs> so we seem to be entering that uh, in a certain sense in the way in which the public over the last week or two has especially gone down this pathway of thinking that wearing a mask is about your identity, um, what politics you line up on or, or the other. So can you talk a little bit about how you think about that in this uh, next phase of harm reduction? Yeah, Ryan, thank you for that um, very thoughtful framing. So to back up a little bit and talk about why I think that we're in the strategy now of harm reduction, which again, I wouldn't have advised us for, um, I, I would have hoped that we would not be here, right? Because my understanding of where we should be is that we were trying to contain the disease. We were trying to get the level of the viral transmission to be at a low enough level that we could also build up our public health infrastructure and do testing, tracing, and isolation so that we could box in this virus. We could bring in the infection and open safely as a result of that. But we have not met the White House's own guidelines for reopening and have reopened all 50 states regardless and businesses are reopening anyway. Again, as, as you quoted, I mean, there are a lot of businesses that should not be reopening, one could argue, but are. And so we are now backed into the strategy of if people are going to be engaging in risky practices, what are the highest risk practices that we can cut out? And what are the things that at least we can educate people about the, about the risks that they're taking and they can think about their levels of risk accordingly and reduce risk where possible. And I think, I mean, you raise an, um, a point, I think, for that makes me think about just different parts of the population. I do think that there are some people who are trying to, again, make masks a political statement who may not believe that COVID-19 is real, right? I mean, there is a portion of the population who are, who are doing that. And that same portion may be the ones who are vacationing in Lake of the Ozarks, which I know well, because I went to medical school, Missouri, and think about all these patients who could have been my patients. Um, but you have that segment. But I actually think that the majority of the country is in another phase. I think there are some people who are terrified of everything. But I think most people are in this middle um, group where they want to do the right thing, but they want guidance for how to do it. And I think that's why the, 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 um, the strategy of harm reduction is particularly helpful to them because they could be saying, okay, if I'm, I really want to get my hair done, but right now it's not safe to go to a hair salon that sprays, sprays aerosols into the air. And if I sit in a salon for six hours, the time of exposure really matters. And so I really don't want to go to a hair salon for that purpose, but I could go and get my hair cut in for 20 minutes with cold water, ideally in a place that's well ventilated. If hair salons are going to be open anyway, let's encourage that practice and put off those riskier practices for later. The same thing for restaurants. If you have to go to a restaurant, takeout is the safest. But if you have to go somewhere, sit outside where there could be a lot of social distancing and don't linger, right? And so I think that's, that's why the harm reduction principle is the most helpful. It's for people who want to reduce their risk not for those who don't believe that this is real or for those who don't want to take any risk at all. So Kavita, I'd like to pick up on the same theme because it seems like we've entered another phase 
whether we should be entering another phase or not is unclear, but, but the country is opening up. Um, and as both Ryan and Lena have indicated, uh, there are, you know, political factors that are influencing how some people are taking it. They're wearing a mask is a statement, um, uh, which is bizarre, but it's where we are. Uh, and there are certainly good messages about harm reduction. And I've seen some thoughtful articles where people would say, you know, eating outside is fine. Flying on an airplane is actually not as bad as, you know, as you might think, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also a lot of confusion. And, I, and I'll pick up one thing that I think is confusing for lay people. And that is that while you look at certain places in the U.S. and you see the, 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 the virus continuing to spread and, and spread more quickly and, and even deaths begin continue to rise, um, there are little pockets. And there are a lot of these places that are behaving outrageously badly that are not having the statistical catastrophe that you thought might come. And it seems to me that sends a message. And, and, and the question I have is, how, how should we be framing all that? Yeah, no, it's a great point. And, and I, as you were speaking to this, and as Lena was kind of eloquently highlighting, I think what has probably been keeping her up at nights, I'll, I'll just say that, um, you know, I'm from Texas. And so I had been keeping close tabs on some of the areas of the country, knowing full well the coasts were going to be affected. I don't think any of us could have predicted to what extent, you know, Manhattan, but we weren't surprised that there was this coastal phenomenon, which unfortunately makes it look like it's a blue state phenomenon, not, not so. However, we now know that in some of those places that did not get affected as greatly, um, Wisconsin, to Lena's point, Missouri, you know, we now know numbers are increasing uh, in some of those states and that hospitalizations are also increasing not to anywhere to the degree, David, as you point out, that there have been in other areas. And I think the lessons we're taking from that are that it's not as bad. In fact, I talked to some doctors in the South who are close friends of mine from medical school, and they said, this isn't, as, this isn't any worse than the flu. Like, this is exactly what we see during the influenza. And I think, I think the point that I've made is that there is um, an infectiousness of this virus that, yes, you may be in a population that didn't have the density, but don't be deceived. This can easily overtake your system. And then maybe even more important is that as we are releasing restrictions, New York State, you've seen this in parts of California, and we open up travel, that that confuses the picture as well. Um, Las Vegas is a good example of that. If it weren't for the fact that that mayor shut down the casinos when he did, which was a very bold action, you wouldn't see kind of only hundreds of, of deaths. You would see thousands and thousands. They're reopening June 4th. I know they're going to be careful about it, but it seems antithetical to open up the strip and say that you can do it safely, even though that's what they need for the economy of Las Vegas to move. So on its surface, and even as this was unfolding, I, you know, looking at like numbers in Florida, I was frankly shocked. And I still, to this day, have been wondering, is that a phenomenon of testing, under testing, which I think the answer is yes, partly. Number two, maybe some element of temporal relief. Um, 
because this started in East Coast and maybe there's some element of the humidity, the temperature and the time since travel kind of got restricted. Yes, that's probably true. And then the third is some level of like this inoculum, you know, how much can you transmit through surfaces versus that direct contact that the high density locations kind of facilitate. And then fourth, I think, and Lena's spoken about this as well as I have around the racial and ethnic disparities this does affect, it's not disproportionate, it's proportionate to the system we've set up for taking care of people of color. So it's, it's a lot of those things. And, and as we've passed um, 100,000 deaths, and I think those are undercounted, it only magnifies to me when I talk to friends who are in um, parts of Michigan that were not affected as much as Detroit, they're like, it's just not that bad here. And I said, but you will accept that it's been bad. I mean, it may not have hit you in your neighborhood, but you will accept that this is not a good thing and that this is no longer a liberal conspiracy. This is a virus and we are scared. I am a doctor and I am bunkered in as much as I can be. And I don't want to go out because I don't know how to make sense of the patients I see and why some people are dying and why some aren't. And so I, that's a long way of answering that I think this is unfortunate that there are some lessons being taken away that make it look like the red states were immune. But in fact, David, the statistics would tell us that that's not the case anymore. Uh, yeah. I mean, it beggars the imagination a little bit when people say it wasn't that bad. When you think the number of people who have died is greater than the number of American soldiers that have died in every war since World War II. Uh, and you, no one would ever say, oh, well, Iraq wasn't that bad. I, you know, you know, our, or the Vietnam War, it wasn't such a bad war. Only 55,000 people died in it. Um, the other thing that I would just point out there before turning it back to, to, to Ryan is that when you look, talk about the racial disparities uh, and you talk about it not being that bad, I was, I was, I was reading something that um, our friend Lori Garrett had posted today and a couple of other articles, one in The Lancet, that we're, we're talking about how uh, particularly in... Uh, uh, patients of, uh, uh, I, th I think, African-American patients, but, but in others, you are getting um, massive bleeding in the lungs, people drowning in their own blood in their lungs. In other words, it's not the flu. You know, it's not, it's this is a fairly serious disease that, that multiple systems uh, break down. Yeah, there's one, I, I can't, I'll just say this because it probably is not, a deep state radio commonly quoted. Um, I had a brief stint kind of working in the DC area. As many know, we were pretty hard hit for a period. And at its peak, I had to kind of function as a pseudo hospital person, which I am not. I'm a clinic person. Lena's a hospital person. Um, but I had to help out. And it was when things were just so hectic and we were intubating people. I'll, I'll tell you that most of the people in the ICU, all... I've, I've never said this before um, as, as candidly, but I'm telling you now, every single one of them were, every single one of them had so many things happening at the same time. And, and normally when people kind of have, they're intubated and they've got, you know, body fluids and they've got all, you know, all sorts of things happening. You're trying very much to clean it up. They were in such a state of clinical distress. And these are not old, frail people, young, healthy people that you couldn't even clean the, you know, their, their face fast enough without having things leaking out. All of them had some form of tubes into their stomachs. 
And just to be even more kind of graphic, all of them had some sort of bed sores or, you know, problems, but it was so hard to keep up with how quickly their bodies were decaying and clinically deteriorating. And I've never seen anything like that before in my life. And I remember kind of remarking after doing this for one week, I remembered thinking, wow, I really wish there was a snapshot of this to show America because this is so scary (laughs) that I, you know, I don't know how to do anything other than terrify people when I would describe it. And there, there are doctors and nurses and therapists who are doing that every day, all day. And I just did it for a brief period. But it's, it, you're right. It's, it's, it's exactly what you describe in literature, but even scarier. Ryan? Um, yeah, and also just to add an, another piece to that, I think from anecdotal information, it sounds like there's also going to be a, a group of individuals who have, quote unquote, survived the coronavirus but have very serious long-term medical issues, um, including uh, very significant like respiratory issues and things like that, which sounds like there's going to be more reporting on that um, nowadays. Um, I guess the one other issue that I thought would maybe be good to talk about is a piece that came out yesterday in the Washington Post. Uh, so it was a report by the Washington Post titled, Coronavirus May Never Go Away Even With a Vaccine. And um, this dovetails, I think, in a certain sense uh, with Lena's earlier piece as the op-ed in the Washington Post about harm reduction. But it's trying to envision what the country might look like and other countries around the world, too, might look like um, if indeed it's true that a vaccine is not going to be well distributed um, or might not be as effective as we hope. And so what, what do you all think about what the new normal might look like? What should Americans, for example, prepare for? And what should the government be doing to prepare Americans? So that's the, that's the question. And then I'll, I'll do a little bit of a, I think it's a three-sentence quote from the Washington Post piece. So they say, quote, In coming years, uh, robots and automated lines could become ubiquitous in meatpacking plants, which have experienced some of the country's worst outbreaks. Families may have to make diagnostic tests routine ahead of visits to grandparents. Once mocked office cubicles of a bygone era may become the rage again, replacing open floor plans now found at many companies. Paid sick time might become a necessity for jobs of all types, end quote. And that's, in some sense, the Washington Post is trying to prepare people for these long-term structural adjustments but it, and also saying that government hasn't really been doing this. So if you could just talk to um, us about that, I think it'd be helpful for people to hear about it. Lena. Yeah, so... Any of the Yeah, Ryan, as you were talking, I was just um, reflecting on something that um, on one of the last daily briefings that the CDC did. Um, as you know, we haven't had daily briefings by the CDC since early March, but in one of the last of these CDC briefings, even though we didn't know it was one of their last ones, um, Dr. Nancy Messonnier made a comment about how Americans should be preparing for disruptions to our everyday life. That was back in late February. And she clearly saw something that the rest of us had not yet seen. And I don't know if she knew at the time how long that disruption was going to last, but I think it's becoming clearer and clearer that this virus is not going to go away. Whatever opportunity we might have had to contain it and get rid of it worldwide certainly is not going to happen now, and primarily because of the U.S. and our lack of action, but it's certainly not going to happen 
around the world. And so I, I think the Washington Post, the quote that you made, Ryan, is, is correct that we are going to be living with this virus in some way, even if we have a vaccine. We are assuming that the vaccine, I think so many of the conversations around the vaccine make it sound like it's the it's 100 percent effective for everyone. But if it's like the flu vaccine, that's 40 to 60 percent effective and you have to get it every year. And by the way, you still might get the flu and certain individuals are more susceptible than others. I mean, if that's the case, we just have to live with this virus. And I think so many things are going to be different in ways that we cannot even anticipate. I mean, some of the things you mentioned, Ryan, I think are certainly possible. I think, for example, for the practice of medicine, telemedicine might well become the norm. Going back to school or work, um, there might well be um, instances of not just having your temperature checked or, or symptom screening, but maybe we have a test um, that we take every few days, um, taking tests to see grandparents or this idea I'm now seeing about the bubble, that if kids are going to go to camp, that they take a test in advance, that they only spend time with each other. So they're in this bubble with each other together, even sports teams that are part of this bubble together. I mean, who would have thought that that was a thing before? Um, I think there's so many other aspects that we might not necessarily have imagined, even not shaking hands, not having touch with people outside of our immediate family, um, 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 not having hugs and, you know, the idea of having dinner parties might even become difficult. And so I think there's a lot that we need to be preparing for, but I also think there's a lot that we don't yet know. Actually, I was just reading a piece that Kavita wrote um, with one of her colleagues um, about workplaces and the things that you need to be doing in workplaces that I thought was just really interesting. We keep on thinking about just the prevention aspect of, as you mentioned, Ryan, the cubicles and, um, and maybe not having lunch spaces, but also what are we going to be doing to um, detect the cases and what do we do once they're positive? I think it's, you know, it's really interesting but also I think we'll see a lot more about how this evolves over time because we may find out that those initial procedures that we think are effective are not. And the world that we have in six months may look very different from what can we even imagine now. You want to talk about that article, Kavita? And, the, and sure, pick up yeah. On this so it's just, a, I'll touch briefly on it and kind of answer Ryan's point question uh, as well. It, it's uh, just an article that kind of talks through how, how workplace safety is going to involve basically a collision between what we would normally say are responsibilities of employers and healthcare, meaning now it's putting HR managers into an incredible quandary about like, what do we do to screen or how do we make things safer? But actually to make your workplace safer, which means as an employee, I have to feel like I'm not going to be at risk and put my family at risk, et cetera, et cetera you have to actually take on characteristics of working. Your employer almost has to help kind of function as a healthcare provider in an ironic way, because you're going to have to, to Lena's point, like you're not going to be able to go into anything without some risk. It might be a hair salon and you have to decide like what level of risk is acceptable. So it just describes this. um, We're going to have to get very comfortable being uncomfortable as employers or schools or churches or, you know, fill in the blank. And then to kind of Ryan's point, the thing I'll say that, um, I'm, I'm frankly kind of concerned about is, to, you're right, a vi- vaccine will not take this away. And in fact, if you think about other viruses and kind of patterns, and Lori Garrett is the expert on this, but you know, what we expect is a second peak, maybe a second wave. And then there's a part where this virus just becomes endemic. It just becomes part of what, like the influenza virus, becomes something that we accept that kills people, hospitalizes people, 
when we have a vaccine, it'll have a certain amount of effectiveness. And so to Lena's point, because of this infectious nature, and hopefully this virus is less infectious over time, but there is going to be some elements that we just never go back to. And I think our consciousness to say that the United States of America, even I was in the category kind of Ryan and David in January, even though I knew this was coming and it could be bad, I didn't even start clamoring for universal face masks. So even I kind of got blindsided a little bit. And so for us to come from that to now me feeling like my entire family should have masks on when we leave or go someplace public, that's a pretty big cultural shift. And we're going to see several of those. I, I also just don't know how schools look the same no matter what, because it just feels like that's going to be incredibly difficult to go, quote, go back to normal. But I also know that there are, I will, not to make this political, but this is one of the few environments where I can make it political. I don't know, voting, you know, we have to, we're going to have a very big series of votes coming up, including an important one in November. And I, I don't know if our country is braced for how that is just not going to look the same, whether it's mail and ballot or whatnot. And so these are things that are very American to us, and they're not going to look the same. And I don't know for how long, but at least for the near future. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I was talking to um, actually my brother-in-law, and he was saying he works in a big office tower in Manhattan. They've said, don't expect to go back for the end of the year. Talk to my daughter work one of my daughters works in a big office tower minute said don't expect to go back before the end of the year well then the question is will you ever go back or will you go back three days a week or will you go back four days a week um and if you don't what happens to those parts of those communities that depended on all of that the coffee shops and the taxis and the bars and the you know it, it they're, they're, they're a transition may begin um, in how cities are structured and how the workplace operates. Um, and it could go uh, for some, some time to come. Ryan, do you have an, another point or do you have a, another question? Sure. Um, uh, just switching the focus a little bit, I uh, had a question about um, mental health issues uh, with the coronavirus. So I'd noticed, uh, Lena, that you had tweeted out a piece by one of your colleagues at George Washington, uh, Dr. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Janice Blanchard, or Blanchard, uh, which is a CNN opinion piece about the kind of neglect from the White House for mental health issues. And the way I've thought about part of the issue, just a slice of it, because that was a large focus, was on the mental health of healthcare providers. Uh, but a slice that I've also thought about that was part of the CNN piece is just for ordinary, you know, everybody else as well, people who are living through quarantine and things like that. And one of the pieces of it that's analytically <laughs> and otherwise uh, disturbed me is when the president or some of his economic advisors uh, go on TV and say, oh, look at all the death that occurs through quarantine. And that's why we have to open up the economy because look at all the rates of suicide that occur when we're shut down and people are isolated. To which my thought is, well, that's not static. You know, you don't have to treat that as a inevitability. You could do something about it, <laughs> like invest all sorts of kinds of uh, resources um, in addressing those people's problems in order to help them and reduce the level of trauma and mental health 
issues to whatever degree we can. Um, so that's the, that's the way I think of it. But it'd just be good if either one of you wants to talk a bit about uh, surfacing those issues, which otherwise don't, haven't received as much attention uh, since people talk about mortality much more than we talk about mental health issues that are uh, cropping up. Mm-hmm. Well, both of you, Lena first, maybe then Kavita. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm glad I'm, I get to highlight um, the article of, of one of my good friends and colleagues, Dr. Blanchard, who um, Kavita also knows very well, too. So um, glad that we get to um, give Janice a shout Are there out. really only five or six of you who are handling this? Because <laughs> everybody seems to know each other. And- <laughs> I think it's a small world of physician, public health folks, and I'm glad to be able to hear their voices during this, in part, actually, because we haven't been able to hear the voices from the exceptional public health leaders who are in federal government. Their voices should be the ones that are heard, but in the absence of their voices, we are stepping up into this void. But um, anyway, different different topic. Um, I first, um, Ryan, wanted to address one point you raised, which is some people have been talking about this idea of individuals not being able to get medical care of all types because of COVID-19 and somehow saying that, well, us shutting things down is the reason why they're not getting medical care. I think there's another reason why they're not getting medical care, which is that they're scared to get care. And you know what? They're right to be scared. You know, when I gave birth um, eight now, not almost nine weeks ago, I was scared, right? I didn't want to get COVID-19 from being in the hospital. I had a doctor and a nurse on the OB floor who had just been diagnosed with COVID-19 um, and a bunch of people were out on quarantine so much so that it was understaffed and I couldn't even get in for my induction when it, was, when it was first scheduled. I mean, we're not, patients are not getting care in part, in large part because we don't, we're still scared to go and get that care. So the best way to get our healthcare system back to normal is to get COVID-19 under control. So I think the, you know, so I think that's my rebuttal for people who say, well, we shouldn't shut things down because it's bad for if people are dying. Well, <laughs> people are dying because people are dying. So let's fix that issue first. Um, but um, the other issue of a, of a mental health, Ryan, I think you raised is a, is a good one. I think there are underlying problems, just as we talk about with disparities, that are underlying problems that already exist with addiction, with mental health. And of course, those are exacerbated that we see amplified disparities during these times too. So I absolutely agree, of course, with additional attention to these issues, while also accepting that it's uh, the, it's the acute issues right now on top of the underlying problems that, that, that we've had. And I'll just, I'll just add, um, you know, there's been a number of, I think, kind of wake-up calls about mental health over the decades, and we've, we still don't have, just from a wonky standpoint, we still don't actually really have mental health parity. It's something I worked on when I worked for Ted Kennedy, and we got some progress in the Affordable Care Act, but still do not. We still treat diseases of the mind different than diseases of the body. So that's one problem that's kind of exposing itself in COVID-19. And then on top of that, we've got, you know, one in four that are unemployed and we've got kind of stressors affecting the country. So a mental health crisis paired with the fact that we don't even really have an adequate way to treat or screen for these things, combined with also just to pile on top of this we, it's not, you know, we don't have enough contact tracers or testing. We don't have enough mental health professionals. We don't have enough people who can actually recognize and help people cope. And America's always been a country. It's funny when you, I think all of us have traveled the world and, and are from other countries in some form or fashion. In other countries, there's a sense of community. And what I fear is that there's just more and more isolation 
and by the way, this kind of unnecessary politicization of the masks and this just make people feel even more isolated. So when talking through, but not to kind of be doom and gloom all the time, which I feel like sometimes I am with coronavirus, I think what we have to figure out at, to your point, David, we need to figure out how to radically restructure our physical space and also radically restructure parts of the economy that are incredibly lagging in order to allow for some sort of disruption. We can't have generations of children who are graduating, young adults who are graduating, where their only memory is, you know, being isolated and on videos the whole day. So there's going to, there is going to be, I hope, a, a resurgence, much like we've seen post-depression, kind of post-World War II, I mean, I, I want to say that in times of like incredible crisis that we can come out of this, but we're going to need leadership to do that. And, and we don't have leadership today to do that. So I actually kind of hope that like voices like ours can kind of break through and that we can have something that is something that makes sense out of all of this on the other side. The mental health is just one very large kind of piece of this. No doubt. Ryan? Um, I don't know, David, do you want to switch gears to the Minnesota? Um, yeah, I would like to do that in one minute, um, uh, if, if, if we could. But it, if, if I may just frame this slightly differently though, for the last round of, on this, this subject, um, I'll use another personal analogy. My brother, very smart guy, said, you know, this going very badly here in the United States. I'm going to go uh, to where my wife lives in Rio de Janeiro. And so he goes down to Brazil to escape the virus. Of course, now he's desperately trying to get a plane out of Brazil where this thing is wildly out of control, where Bolsonaro is, is like looking at the Trump playbook and saying, how can I make this worse? You know, he's, 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 he's really, you know, top himself. And where Latin America is looking at a healthcare catastrophe that could be worse than what we've got and economically could be a greater economic catastrophe than what we've got. Uh, and of course, all this comes back to haunt us because it's, it's winter there, right? So, you know, they're going to go through this and people are going to come back and 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 reinfect us you know this is part of this cycle so i just we've t- we've talked about the pockets in the us and i just if i could just pose a question to 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 lena and kavita um briefly what about the pockets in the rest of the world how do they concern you and 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 what do you think of what's happening i mean we are all interconnected. Um, and of course, diseases know no boundaries. I will say though that we are the epicenter, right? We're still the epicenter. And, you know, we should be looking at what more the US could be doing here too. Um, um, and of course, we should be trying to help other parts of the world. But frankly, I'm so concerned about lack of a national strategy in the US that is going to have effects on the rest of the world too. Yeah. Okay. Kavita, you spent. Yeah, and I'll. I, so I, it's just for uh, listening pleasure. One of my favorite websites to like completely lose my mind in is nextstrain.org. It's and and next strain n e x t s t 
S-T-R-A-I-N.org. And it's a crowdsourced um, kind of series around the genetic, you've heard a lot about genetic strains of COVID and a lot of misinformation because technically we actually don't have that many strains of the virus. Um, and it shows exactly what your point is, David, that, and, and in Lena's point, it actually shows on a big, big blob that the United States is right now the epicenter. But to your point, it shows travel patterns, you know, in and out of Brazil. And it kind of shows in this beautiful map um, that I'll put in a link so that you can have it for the podcast. This, it just crystallizes the point that you made that it is global and that because of the cycles that we could just keep seeing like a recycling of this virus, which is why a lot of people like um, myself and and others don't think this is going to go away, even with a great vaccine. So it to me speaks to what one, it speaks to the like awakening that we are a global society and for reasons that also had to do with our kind of lack of trust of the World Health Organization, a topic we've talked about. Um, we have had a lack of transparency, many sides to that, but we thought this virus came from Asia. We found out the New York strain was mostly from Europe. And I think that just tells us that we cannot ignore what the statistics are telling us. And when you look at the kind of travel patterns and you look at Brazil and you look at the feeder in and out of Brazil, it, it comes back to the United States. So it concerns me a great deal that you've got, you know, the top three countries, right? U.S., Brazil, Russia. What do all three of them have in common? It disturbs me, the lack of leadership that takes this seriously. And for me, that's a recipe for repeat disaster, not just one-time disaster. Do you want to reframe the, or do you want to frame the question, Ryan, that you were talking about earlier about uh, about Minneapolis that that Kavita had raised offline earlier, uh, and and maybe she or and Lena can respond to it, or do you want me to? Right. Yeah. If you if you if you want to do it. Well, no. It was just a, I mean, Kavita suggested this when we were going back and forth talking about the 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 podcast today, and and. You know, the, what's happening in Minneapolis is pretty shocking. There is a kind of a public health under undercurrent to, to it with regard to how the police treat the people that the police deal yeah. with. And, and Kavita, you, 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 you had had some experience with this in L.A. And so I thought, you know, that it's a good idea to frame it. Yeah, and I'll just say briefly, so I won't lose time. Um, this comes, so there's so many... Trayvon Martin. I mean, we have so many names now that we can invoke. And this is, you know, yet again, like another example of where we stop and we say, gosh, this really shouldn't happen. Um, after the kind of South LA riots, there was an initiative with the LAPD to really try to understand how to better deal um, both with aggression tactics, but also how to recognize early on, and this is the public health part, kind of before a situation escalates how to recognize how LAPD officers of all types um, in terms of rank could recognize signs of mental health, mental illness, also how they can use kind of what we would call in public health or in healthcare interviewing techniques that we use in healthcare to kind of diffuse situations when, and Lena's seen this in the emergency room a lot more, but you know, where you can diffuse a, a kind of a really high stakes kind of interaction that's going you know, in a wrong direction. So we, um, part of UCLA, when I was a fellow there, we actually engaged with the community of Los Angeles Police Department 
and had what I would say was a pretty successful for its intervention series of helping people recognize what they could do early on to diffuse situations. And we actually talked about the scenario of use of force, which I, you know, I'm a doctor, what do I know about use of force? But we talked through kind of the difficult situations that officers find themselves in, adrenaline, we talked about the kind of actual physiologic manifestations, which all brings me to what happened in Minnesota. And I'll just say this, it was striking for me, Alina and I have done intubations, you know, where you put tubes into the patient to help them breathe, which a lot of people are getting for COVID. And when I think about the anatomy of the neck, it just was such a striking parallel that there was never a situation, even at the height of what we were doing in training with the Los Angeles Police Department, where you would compromise kind of the physical neck because to do that was such a use of force that was so unnecessary and everything vital to your brain and your blood flow goes through your neck. And it's such a small anatomical space. It's so small that there was not, never any reason for it, even to subdue the most aggressive, aggressive of aggressors. So for me, it was a striking moment. We crossed 100,000 deaths and we have this like public use of force. And it felt to me like, God, what have we, like, where, what have we not learned in humanity and where have we gone wrong? And then I also reflected on kind of the success we had in those moments in like the early thousand, 2000s in Los Angeles. And I almost kind of thought, gosh, has that actually, could we have done more if we had done that nationwide? Is there, again, a better role for having like public health and, um, you know, public health and, and uh, like police officers and lawyers and judges actually working together more? Could this have been prevented? And I, I kind of end with that thought because it, it keeps me up at night and it keeps anybody who has a child of color or any child in general kind of wondering what society we're bringing our children into. And I, I think about that a lot. So I, I appreciate the chance to talk about it, but I think of it almost as a public health issue as well, that we need to do a better job as a society to recognize this. Well, Lita, you were a public health commissioner in uh, the city of Baltimore, um, uh, a city that faces issues like this as well. What do, what do you think of what Kavita has just said? Um, I mean, I, of course, agree and um, want to add to that, too. You know, I was the health commissioner during the um, civil unrest, the uprising, following the death of Freddie Gray, um, an unarmed African-American man while in police custody. Right. This was back in um, April, May of 2015. Um, and I, I think there is no doubt in my mind and in um, the minds of so many people who lived through that period that just as we say that we talk about the pandemic as being a public health issue or mental health and opioid epidemic as, an, as a public health issue, that racism is also a public health issue, that structural racism and inequalities have gotten us to where we are with the disparities that we're seeing, but they are also manifest in so many other ways too. Um, and I mean, I think it is time for us to call out these problems as they are and to consider the long-term, the short-term solutions as what Kavita is proposing, right, which include better training and understanding of treating people like the human beings that we are, recognizing our shared humanity, but also the longer-term structural changes that have to occur too. Ryan, do you have something you want to add to this part of the discussion? Sure. I mean, um, just uh, the way in which I also think about it resonates with um, what Kavita and Lena just said. 
Um, and Van Jones was on CNN today talking about the issue. And I just, he also said things of a similar sort that resonated for me, which is like, how did we get to this point? And we all have to think about how complicit different parts of society are that could make the conditions to which we have um, such, the, such a brutal um, killing um, and a deep form of contempt for human life and African-American men's uh, lives and the dehumanization that goes into that to be able to just see that happen in broad daylight. And, and I think that that's, and that's right that it's like, I've thought about structural racism as a national security issue. Um, one of the reasons that the Russians kind of exploit that part of our society. Uh, but then now with the pandemic as well, it's just it, what, what has just been said, that it's also a public health issue, that these things are all tied together um, and the ways in which uh, structural racism is also manifesting itself in terms of the outcomes um, of the pandemic. So both this gigantic number of 100,000 deaths being crossed at the same time that we see uh, this killing slash murder uh, by a police officer uh, with other police officers around, um, I think uh, hopefully that shakes up uh, a new kind of, you know, thinking about this. Uh, it was remarkable that somebody like Sean Hannity seemed to get it um, in that there's this, at least I've seen a part of a clip from his show where he talks about the same issue, like he can't imagine why somebody would try to close off that part of a person's um, ability to breathe. Um, and so he's actually seeing it in a way that's similar to others, but I, I don't think he's seeing it similar in terms of the structural violence and how uh, large swaths of our society and certainly um, his outlet are responsible. Um, so I think it's about that question for me that is the harder one for us to try to grapple with, um, given what is happening on our um, on the streets of, of the country right now. Yeah, I thank you all for that, because the reality is, um, as Kavita points out, the juxtaposition of this horrific crime in Minnesota and this horrific public health catastrophe um, raise a question that's fundamental. You know, we enter into social contract to have a government and the first thing we expect of the government is to keep us safe, to protect us. And we're at a moment where in a country that spends more money on its national defense than the next 10 or so countries added up, we don't trust our government to keep us safe, whether it's our president saying take a poison or taking steps that exacerbate a crisis like this, or whether it's the police force. Um, there are real questions out there, uh, questions that are greater for people of color, for poor people, for people living in inner cities, uh, and have been for a long time. But it's important for us to keep it in mind, and that's why I thought it was important to bring it up in this broader context. I thank you very, very much, Lena, and I thank you, Kavita, and I thank you and say happy birthday, Ryan. I thank everybody for listening. Please come back next week and every week. Uh, we've launched a new series of, of podcasts each week where we're going to look at what we call Agenda 2021, where we try to bring in uh, experts who might 
give us an insight into what a new administration would do come come January. We had this week the kickoff with uh, two former deputy secretaries of state, Ambassador Bill Burns and Tony Blinken, who's the senior foreign policy advisor to the Biden campaign. Next week, we have a discussion about democracy and human rights policy with um, uh, the uh, three of the leading uh, advocates for uh, those issues, Ken Roth uh, from Human Rights Watch, Suzanne Nossel from Penn uh, Project, and Derek Mitchell from NDI. Uh, so in addition to our regular programming, I encourage you to go and look to that. For more about that and everything else we do, go to thedsrnetwork.com. Uh, once again, thank you guys for joining us. Thank you, everybody out there for joining us. And Stay safe. Bye-bye.